So, congratulations. You have made it through the first day of this arduous journey called retreat. First day is sometimes challenging, so it's, it's no small thing to uh, do this simple and yet not so easy task of being present. It's not so simple. It's not so easy, is it? As simple as we saw that it was this morning, it's not so easy. You get challenged by just about every uh, ego trick imaginable, do you not? When I came to this practice um, some 25 years ago now, it's hard to believe, but that's what happened, I had already um, been studying psychology, clinical psychology. I really wanted to understand this inner world. I really was driven to try to know more about this consciousness. That's really what was attractive to me. So I got a PhD in in, uh, psychology, in clinical psychology. And, you know, I I thought I had a bit of a grip on things. I I had some maps and some sense of direction. And um, so when I came to practice, I kind of dove right in. I went almost immediately to a three-month course. And at that time, there weren't that many retreats, so there weren't so many choices as there are now. So there were a few 10-day retreats, and then there was this three-month retreat back at Insight Meditation, and I thought, okay, just go, do it. And I went, and I was really kind of uh, amazed. I I was really scared, for one thing, because it felt a bit like dying, you know, signing up for something for three months in silence. Oh, my goodness. But I was also very amazed that they really expected us, me in this instance, (laughs) to do just what we have been encouraging here today, to look within in this very moment-to-moment way, to cultivate this immediacy and directness of knowing. It seemed like a very daunting task, and it seemed like something that I didn't think a human being could do, never mind me doing it. It was just like, you got to be kidding. But of course, over time, as I am still sitting here with you, still looking within, I have come to appreciate this way of learning. This is a process of learning that is quite unusual, quite... uh, unordinary, not ordinary, this, this immediacy and this directness of knowing ourselves, knowing the mind by observing it very directly and immediately. Usually, what is our usual way of learning about things? We read some books, we get some ideas, we think about it. But this immediate, direct way of knowing is usually the last resort. So just to say that um, this is a a bit of an unusual 
way of uh, learning, and especially in our Western culture. I think in the East, in, in, in countries where this practice comes from, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, India, the Paul people are a little more familiar with the idea of spending long periods of time looking within. In our culture, it still seems as somewhat strange. I don't know how many of you, you know, told people you were coming on retreat, and maybe they thought that sounded really exotic and wonderful, you know. Like, wow, you'll have a great time, you'll relax, you'll, you know, be able to kick back, not have any work to do. It just sounds like a holiday, right? And then you get here, and whoa! Why does it feel like work, being with myself in this continuous way? We're not used to it. And yet it is definitely true that the best way to know the mind is to sit down and observe it. So tonight I want to talk a a, a little bit about the territory of what we are observing. What we are observing is what is called the nature of mind. The nature of mind is the way we study the Buddha's teaching. By knowing the nature of the mind, we know the nature of what it means to be a Buddha, what it means to be a human, and what it means to be potentially a Buddha. So I'd like to talk about this somewhat briefly tonight. I'm really trying not to talk too long these days. If Howard falls asleep, let me know, because that means I have definitely talked too long. (laughs) So Suzuki Roshi said this. He was a wonderful Zen master. He said, do you understand the two minds? The mind which includes everything, and the mind which is related to something. This morning you actually began to explore this in the exercise that we did. You began to explore what is called the relative mind, the small mind, which is always in relationship to seeing, hearing, thinking, tasting, touching the sense doors. It is in relationship to objects that arise in our practice. And the absolute or the big mind, the mind of awareness, the mind that is directly in contact prior to thought, before thinking, the mind that simply knows, doesn't know, doesn't need an object for its knowing, it simply knows. The small mind fixates on objects, thinks about them, analyzes, likes some things, dislikes others. The small mind is the reactive mind, the mind that wants this, doesn't want that, knows what it thinks, is certain about some things, confused about others. But it always, there's a sense of being in contact with something, even if it's another thought. 
And it, this fixation of mind is what keeps us uh, keeps us unfree, we could say. This fixation of mind is what keeps us in the loop, the endless loop of this world, of going around and around and never seeming free. The way out of this loop is through this capacity which we all have at any moment to be aware, to wake up out of the trance of liking and disliking and thinking about into this direct, immediate experience. And this is what frees us potentially from our fixated way of knowing. In any moment of present awareness, more space gets created in the mind. We are less entangled, less caught in the trance of attachment or aversion or confusion. So there's these two aspects of mind, the the relative mind and this absolute nature of mind, which we can call awareness. It is called by many names, the essence of mind, awakened mind, Buddha nature, original mind. It is actually, this quality of the absolute nature of mind is actually represented by this statue here. On the one side we have the Buddha, and on the other side we have this figure. This is called Prajnaparamita. She is considered to be the uh, symbol of awakened mind, awakened wisdom, sometimes called primordial wisdom. She is considered to be the mother of all the Buddhas, of all the awakened ones, because it is out of this unconditioned primordial awareness that Buddhas wake up. She is the symbol of this ever-present capacity that we all have called awareness. Awareness is so, in a way, It is so um, unnoticed in our experience that we don't know its potential. So very much on this retreat, we are taking another look at awareness itself. What's so special about being aware? So on this retreat today, especially maybe tomorrow as well, you may notice that many mental states are arising for you. Many of what we call the hindrances of mind, states of uh, aversion, not liking what's happening or not liking your experience of judging it, feeling impatient, feeling restless, feeling fearful, feeling anxious. Did anybody bump into any of these today? I believe you probably did, because that's what happens to most of us when we are suddenly 
plunk down in the middle of silence and no stimulation and no emails and what's happening with my friends and what were the debates like last night and nobody's telling me anything. You know, there's just this incredible shift in your world. And in that, the mind kicks up a lot of reactivity. So if you are feeling some of that, not to think it is not normal, it is quite normal. You may have found yourself engulfed at times today by states of desire, of greed, of wanting something, anything. Please, let's go read the notice board. Or maybe there's something happening in the dining hall. I should go down there and check it out. Or what's for lunch? Oh, God, lunch is coming at last. I can do something exciting. I can have lunch, you know. We get gripped by these waves of greed, waves of aversion, waves of restlessness, worry, doubt, anxiety, fear. They all come sweeping through like storms. And they're particularly felt uh, quite acutely in this environment of stillness and silence. And as there are not a lot of possibilities here for acting them out or discharging their energy, they can be felt quite acutely and vividly. And so in Vipassana practice, we talk quite a bit about working with the hindrances and how to work with them. And the primary instruction is always through seeing them clearly, through bringing this capacity of awareness directly to them. To see greed as greed, to know aversion as aversion, to know judgment as judgment, to know fear as fear, to know doubt as doubt. And by doing that, we are beginning to learn about the potential of awareness to free ourselves. Because we see that when we do bring this capacity to meeting things very directly and immediately, what happens is there's more space in the mind. More space in the mind gets created, and we find we are more able to be with things, even with very difficult states of mind. We begin to sense that, the, that awareness has a purifying, a transformative effect on even the most stuck places in our own hearts and minds. We also begin to notice how we are creating our, our personal world, how these states arise, and out of them we create images of ourselves, images of other people, ideas about life. The Buddha said, with our thoughts we make the world. That's where it begins, with our thoughts. Think or act with a greedy mind, and suffering will follow you. Think or act with an angry mind, and suffering will follow you. Think or act with a restless, judging mind, and suffering will follow you. Think or act with a generous mind, and happiness 
will follow you. Think or act with a pure mind, with a good heart and happiness will follow you. There is, we begin to sense the actual cause and effect of our own thoughts and feelings in, in creating our reality for good or ill. Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? Usually we look outside of ourselves to discover who that is. In this practice, the direction is to look within. Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? This mind is my enemy. This mind is my friend. This capacity to tame the mind, to turn it from being an enemy, a slave driver, a judge, a critic, a controller, to being actually a good, faithful, friendly, compassionate companion. So we begin to sense how we relate to all that arises, creates our suffering, and also has the capacity to allow for our liberation. The Buddha again, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. So through the learning about this capacity of awareness, we begin to sense more space in the mind. And with more space in the mind, we find other ways of relating to our difficulties with openness rather than contraction, with curiosity rather than animosity, with courage rather than fear, with letting go rather than holding on. We all find this when we practice that the things that we think are most impossible to deal with, when we actually follow the instructions. It took me a long time to actually follow the instructions. I tried all the other things first, you know. But then when nothing worked, I said, okay, I'll be mindful. I'll be aware. I'll be, try to be present with this. And that's the instruction that actually worked. And we discover as we go how to do it. Due to the purifying nature of awareness itself, the torments of mind over time lose their power. And this capacity of awareness begins to wake up in us more and more. So I want to talk uh, more about awareness itself and 
um, begin to investigate it, all of us together, begin to investigate what is the nature of awareness itself. Awareness is the knowing, luminous aspect of our mind. It is the mind which includes everything, that aspect of mind which includes everything. Sometimes awareness is likened to space. So we could say that awareness is like the space in this room. It's not immediately noticeable, is it? You come in a room and usually you notice the things in the room. Just like when we sit down in meditation, what we notice most are the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the sounds, the all that's going on. And we may not we may fail to notice the space of mind, which is called awareness. So awareness is like the space in this room. Achan Sumedho writes, awareness is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We can pack it full of stuff or we can leave it empty. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through awareness without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is what is meant by the practice of letting go. Knowing that there is this capacity of awareness to include everything Part of that capacity is also because awareness has these other characteristics, that of being clear, empty, invisible, indestructible, ungraspable, unobstructed. If we continue with the analogy of space, we can open to this space in this room, but we cannot, there's nothing to hold on to, is there? It's ungraspable. It's also indestructible. There's no way you you can destroy the space in this room. It's also rather invisible. It's both here and yet where is it? The Tibetans love to write 
poems and songs about this quality of awareness. And so here's one from a poem by Nyosho Kempo, who was a wonderful teacher that many of us had the good fortune of sitting with. He says, look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined. But when examined, where is it? There is nothing to it. It is nothing but empty. It cannot be identified saying, that's it. But is evanescent and elusive like mist. So we look for it. We know it's there. We, if somebody said, do you have a mind? You would probably say yes, <laughs> at least on your better days. <laughs> yes, I have a mind. Well, show me your mind. Where is it? Well, I can't show you my mind. Maybe it's somewhere up here in my brain. I don't know. It's tucked away somewhere. <laughs> but the truth is, as much as anyone in the history of the world has ever looked for a mind, they have never found it. And even now, scientists are hot in pursuit of, you know, brain research. They're doing all kinds of wonderful brain research on um, uh, monks, practitioners who've done lots and lots of practice. They're researching the brains of these people, and they're finding some remarkable things. Because whatever these monks are up to are having dramatic effects on how the brain functions. So we could say those are like the footprints of the mind, but they're not the mind itself. Where is this mind? Where does it originate? Where does it come from? So mind as awareness clear, empty, invisible, indestructible, unobstructed, ungraspable, and yet, and this is the amazing part, always present. Is there ever a time that you lose your awareness, that awareness disappears? Actually not. It is always present. We go away by getting lost in our thoughts, getting lost in the trance of liking, disliking, etc. But awareness, whenever we notice, is there. So right now, can you be aware right now of your feet? Can you be aware right now of your hands? Can you be aware right now of sound, hearing? Can you be aware right now of breath, of breathing? Now a question. Was any of that difficult? Did anybody have difficulty doing that? 
Was awareness present? Shake your heads. <laughs> Thank you. I know it's late, but... <laughs> It's right there, isn't it? It's not anything we have to create. Now I'm going to be aware of the bottoms of my feet. We don't have to say that, do we? We direct our attention there, and there's awareness right there, very present. Wherever we direct our attention, there's awareness. See if you can get rid of awareness. The end of one long retreat, I had been thinking about chocolate for days. And I was just like, you know, I was going to get this chocolate. And this was in England, and I had to walk to the local corner store where I knew they had chocolate. So after the retreat, I headed out. (laughs) And what I discovered was I had developed so much mindfulness, so much capacity to be present, that it was really an unpleasant experience (laughs) walking (laughs) step by step to get the chocolate. Awareness had gotten so awake and so subtle that I began to see that desire itself is not as pleasant as I... I mean, getting the chocolate was not the happy experience (laughs) that I thought it would be. And that's what happens when we wake up. We begin to notice things we hadn't noticed before. And that's a good thing, because awareness then helps us learn. It helps us correct our understanding of so much, of desire, of anger, of ignorance, all these things we begin to wake up to and know very directly for ourselves. Another way in which awareness is sometimes characterized is as a mirror, mirror-like wisdom. It simply reflects what is put in front of it. It does not have an opinion. You know, you get up in the morning, you look at, you look at yourself in the mirror. Is, does the mirror have an opinion about you? You may think it does, because, but it's not actually coming from the mirror, is it? It's coming from, oi. (laughs) Not looking so well this morning. That's not the mirror speaking. Mirrors simply reflect what is, whatever is put in front of it. So whatever is put in front of awareness, be it a... uh, um, an angry state or a beautiful state of mind, of joy, of love, of compassion, it simply reflects what is there without any judgment or without any motive. Awareness has no motive. It has no agenda for you, how you should live your life. It simply reflects whatever we place in front of it. A teacher named Peter Fenner calls awareness contentless wisdom. It is wise. 
How is awareness wise? It is wise because it is awake. It is reflecting what is true, what is real, what is there. And it is always present. But it has no content. It has no agenda. It has no motive. It is simply a mirror. The poet Rumi calls awareness, in his poetry, he refers often to the radiant one, the radiant one inside. This is awareness, the luminous knowing capacity of mind. He says, the radiant one inside of me has never spoken a word. Awareness does not speak. Awareness has also been called the ultimate medicine. The ultimate medicine. Because to rest in awareness is a very healing experience. In those moments when we are free of self-preoccupation and simply resting in uncontrived awareness, we often feel free of any suffering whatsoever. Some of you touched this place this morning in the exercise when you were just seeing, just hearing, free of needing to understand or do or know or be somebody. In those moments, we could say there is a kind of healing occurring. In those moments, we often feel that there is nothing missing. We feel satisfied, whole, complete. And that is a healing thing for our minds to experience. Another... um, Kempo wrote, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. When we rest in awareness, we have that feeling of resting our exhausted minds in a place of natural great peace. And that is a good thing. So this capacity that we're cultivating for direct, immediate knowing prior to thinking about is an effortless functioning of awareness itself. It cuts through all of our thoughts about things to the suchness of reality, what Michael Cunningham, the author, calls the secret name of things. From his book, The Hours, he writes, everything in the world has its own secret name, a name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. The suchness of all of our experience when we strip away the concepts, thoughts about, the need to know, the analysis, the liking, the disliking,
There are many ways in which the world we live in lives in the world of concepts. And we will talk more about this as the retreat goes on. But just to know that the direction that we're exploring here is to see and experience directly what is revealed when we drop below the level of concepts. Poetically spoken, poet writes, hour after hour, month after month, day after day, we try to grasp the ungraspable, pinpoint the unpredictable, but life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Trying to grasp it is often what concepts are trying to do. They're trying to solidify something that is innately, inherently fluid and ungraspable. So the direction is to understand the relative nature of mind, to see the play of thought and concept and how it is imposed on our world and how it creates our reality, and to also know that the absolute nature of mind is always available. Whenever we rest, come back to that simple direct knowing of things, that immediate direct knowing of things, we are beginning to recognize this capacity for awareness, for resting directly in awareness. The Buddha said the highest form of knowing is to see everything in its suchness. To see everything in its suchness means to see everything without attachment, without identification, and free from all duality. When the mind is free from these distortions, then there is in the seeing only the seeing, in the hearing only the hearing, in the sensing, only the sensing. In the thinking, only the thinking. The Buddha is often described as one who has gone to suchness, who has left behind the illusions spun by the world of concepts. He is one who knows the true reality of this absolute nature of mind. To close, I'd like to read a description written by Ken Wilbur of this capacity of mind. 
He says, when you rest in the brilliant clarity of ever-present awareness, you are not Buddha or a Bodhisattva. You are not this or that. You are not here or there. When you rest in simple, ever-present awareness, you are unborn, free of all qualities whatsoever. Aware of color, you are colorless. Aware of time, you are timeless. Aware of form, you are formless. In the vast expanse of primordial awareness, you are forever invisible to this world. So it is to this mystery we are setting our sights on. Maybe we could sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 6, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma.